Well, this morning we're continuing in this sermon series, let me see here, that we have titled Rebuilding Church, and we're leaning into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to to find some wisdom and some guidance about what it means to be a place that is, to be a church and the people of God who've experienced over the past couple of years just a real sense of like strain and frustration and at times turmoil in the world. I don't know if you've felt this over the past couple years or not, but there's been a little bit of it. And for me, there's been this real sense of disorientation of what we are doing and kind of what is going on. And as we find ourselves at a point where we're beginning to emerge and reorient ourselves in the world, we're looking to Ezra and Nehemiah for a little bit of guidance about how we might do that best. But this morning we're going to be talking about the Bible a little bit, and we're going to talk about some math and the new exodus and summer camp perhaps a little bit at the end, and I have a story for you all, but in order to ground us this morning, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I will read this here. It's not going to be on the screen this morning because we don't have a media guy. I'm trying to run all of these things. But Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12 this morning. So I invite you, church, to hear the word of the Lord. Nehemiah Nehemiah writes these words. It's on page 482, by the way, if you have a Bible and the the chairs there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all the people of Israel gathered together in the square by the water gate. They asked Ezra the teacher to bring out the book of the teachings of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought out the teachings for the crowd. Men, women, and all who could listen and understand had gathered At the square by the water gate, Ezra read the teachings out loud from early morning until noon to the men, women, and everyone who could listen and understand. All the people listened carefully to the book of the teachings. Ezra, the teacher, stood on a high wooden platform that had been built just for this time. On his right were... Does anybody want to help me out with these names? Because I'm always really embarrassed when I don't know how to say it. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. <laughs> and on his left were Padeah, Michelle, Malchijah, Hashem. Oh my gosh. Hashbanada. I love that name. That's our next child. Zechariah and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book in full view of everyone because he was above them. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people held up their hands and said, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These Levites explained the teachings to the people as they stood there. Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodai, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Peleah. They read from the book of the teachings of God and explained what it meant so the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher and the Levites who were teaching said to all the people, this is a holy day to the Lord your God. Don't be sad or cry. For all the people had been crying as they listened to the words of the teachings. 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy good food and sweet drinks. Send some to people who have none because today is a holy day to the Lord. Don't be sad because the joy of the Lord will make you strong. The Levites helped calm the people saying, be quiet because this is a holy day. Don't be sad. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send some of their food to others and to celebrate with great joy. They finally understood what they had been taught. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have the audacious belief that you might want to speak to us this morning. We have come to that end by faith. And so we ask, oh God, that you would maybe honor our longing and the desires of our hearts this morning by granting us the capacity to hear your voice. We trust that you are one who speaks, and so we ask that you do. For we, your people, are listening in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we find in our text this morning that the people in the Bible don't understand the Bible. (laughs) If you've ever read the Bible and you've thought to yourself, what in the world is this passage all about? I have no idea how that story made it into the good book you are in good company this morning because these are your people that we read about these are my people that we just read about you see so far the book of Nehemiah has focused on the rebuilding efforts of the walls of Jerusalem the effort to reconstruct the walls of the city had been uh, kind of there because they wanted to rebuild uh, that which had been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in the hopes that, that perhaps by, by this participative effort in rebuilding the city that they can reestablish the holiness of the city. And so the remaking of the temple in Ezra and the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah is about establishing a sacred, holy place. Only the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been exploring are not merely interested in exploring and thinking about how places become holy. They are interested in how people become holy. And the scriptures, the Bible, are central to making people holy people. And so in the scene of our text this morning, Ezra the priest He's about to read what's referred to here as the the book of teachings or the Torah or the books of the law. That would have been the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the description of how he went about reading those, those words and those books for the people might sort of conjure up memories for some of us of formal high church sort of liturgy, right? The the picture we get is that there's this massive copy, likely a scroll, that is rolled out for the readings. If you've ever been to like a Catholic church or an Episcopalian church or an Anglican church, when they read from the gospel text, right, they have like the big Bible that they read from. This is the picture of what's going on in Ezra. And, And it's read from an elevated place. 
sometimes preachers, if you've been in churches like that, they'll have a pulpit that isn't just like on a platform, but it's like lifted up a little bit higher because the idea is that this is the word coming down from heaven from God to the people and there's this wooden pulpit that, that holds the scriptures and there are people who are standing to the left and to the right of Ezra so that they can read the text together. And all the people stand for the reading of God's word. Maybe we'll do that next week. What do you think? No, I don't know. Only what's different for the congregation that day is that Ezra doesn't just read merely a small passage of scripture. Those like five to ten verses that you know we'll usually read in a worship service like this one. He reads all 50 chapters of Genesis. Then he reads all 40 chapters of Exodus, all 27 chapters of Leviticus, all 36 chapters of Numbers, and all 34 chapters of Deuteronomy. So I thought about to replicate this experience for you. We might just start reading Genesis together this morning. No, I'm, I'm joking. We won't do that. I don't want you to fall asleep that quickly but you can still fall asleep. But this lengthy reading of scripture includes some of the stories that might be familiar to many of us in the scriptures. You have Adam and Eve and Noah and a flood and Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. And there's like some really good stuff in these initial passages of scripture. But imagine what it might be like hearing all of these stories for the first time. For those who've taught children's church, it's like reading all of those stories to the little ones who are up here for the very first time. It might make you think like, what is this story all about? Why did we decide that that one was going to get into the book or not? And how do you explain it to somebody? You see, the people here, these are not people who are well-versed in the scriptures, the people who are reading this or hearing the scriptures read, they've been in exile for 60 years. The whole point of being in exile for the Babylonians was to strip them of all of their identity as God's people. So they don't have the scriptures. They're hearing all of this for the very first time and without a felt board. That's hard. I want to suggest this morning that that these stories sometimes they are difficult to understand and not just kind of what was read in Ezra. I want to suggest this morning that it's not just not understanding the Bible that sometimes can become a hindrance to making us a holy people. But where we actually get tripped up in allowing the scriptures to form us into holy people is that we actually misunderstand them. Not understanding might lead to confusion and curiosity, but misunderstanding leads to a lot of different places. Now, I don't think of myself to be somebody who pays much attention to like all the spam stuff that sometimes comes in like social media and Facebook, but there's one thing that always catches my attention. Oh, let me do this first. There we go. Here we go. These math equations. Have you guys ever seen these math equations come up on like Facebook or something like that? And they're like, what is the answer to this equation? And you read in the comments and there's like 50 different answers as to what is going on here. So this is one that a while back tried to break the internet is my understanding. And so I know that you didn't know we're going to be doing math this morning. And maybe you wouldn't have come to worship if you knew we're going to be doing math this morning. But maybe just... In your head, I want you to think about what is the answer to this question. 
Eric, don't tell anybody. Just because you're a math teacher doesn't mean that you should be sharing your answers with everybody else. But the most common answers that people will come up with to this equation are 16 and 1. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you didn't get either of those things. Like, if you, I see some of the faces like, oh, I didn't get any of those answers, right? Don't feel bad. But, but if you've come up with either of those answers, there's certainty that, that you're at least familiar with what's going on in the equation. You understand that there's numbers. You get concepts of, like, addition and multiplication and division. But even still... Just being familiar with all of those things, you can still come up with different answers because at the end of the day, if you don't know what to do with all of these familiar things, you might be a little off. See, those of us in the room who just do not understand some of this math are simply left with blank pages and and lack really any concern about whether you got 16 or 1, right? Those of us who misunderstand what to do with these familiar symbols, they, they have easily perhaps stumbled upon a wrong answer. And it's this misunderstanding of what to do with familiar information that can lead us to wrong answers. And I think this dynamic is at play oftentimes when we read the Bible. For so many of us, we've heard the stories of the scriptures and we're familiar with some stories of scriptures. We're, we're familiar with Adam and Eve and we're as familiar with those things as we are with multiplication. Yet, if we don't consider what we ought to do with the stories of the Bible, well, we can end up with a lot of wrong ways to use it and what to do with it. So what are we to do with the Bible, with the familiar See, the reality is, church, and I want to say this very clearly, I can, many people can, make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. You use enough sort of fancy words, you use enough theological words, you talk about Greek and Hebrew and the Aramaic, and you could pretty much say anything you want using the Bible. Do you want the Bible to be okay with tattoos? I do. I got one. I know you didn't know that. But you can do that with the Bible. You want the Bible to be against tattoos because your kid is asking you if they should get a tattoo? You can do that. Do you want the Bible to be okay with drinking alcohol? Sure, you can do that. If you want the Bible to be like totally against alcohol, I can do that too. I'm a good Nazarene. I know how to do that. Do you want the Bible to be pro-war? You can do that. You want the Bible to be anti-war? You can do that too. Do you want the Bible to be for women in ministry? You can do that. You want the Bible to be against women being clergy and pastors? You can do that too. Do you want the Bible to support young earth creationism? Absolutely. I could do that in a jiffy. Just give me Genesis and let's go. Do you want the Bible to support evolution? You can also do that. You can do and make the Bible say anything that you want it to do. This is why, by the way, in our nation's history, you have Christian ministers in the Southern Confederacy in America using the Bible to justify slavery. 
while at the same time you have ministers in the Northern Union using the Bible to promote abolishing slavery. You see, you can make the Bible dance any dance that you want it to. But what often happens is in our lack of understanding and especially our, our misunderstanding of the Bible, we can end up not just with wrong answers, but creating all sorts of hurt and pain to people in the world. And we can justify all of that with the Bible. You see, as Ezra is reading the scriptures, what we get in this scene is that the people gathered in the congregation were said in Nehemiah says, all the people had been crying as they listened to the words of the teachings. As they listened to the, to the, to the, 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 the scriptures being read, they just begin to cry and weep. And they weep because they know like the generations who had been before them had not kept all the commandments of God. As the scriptures are being read, they recognize that they are not aligned with what it means to be the people of God. And on the tail end of completing the, the construction of the wall and the happiness and the joy that came with that project being completed, they begin to experience a complete reversal of emotions here in this moment. As it writes in Lamentations, the author writes, Jeremiah writes, he says, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are sick. Because of these things, our eyes have grown dim. You see, this book that Ezra is reading that was to be the great resource to make them a holy people and a joyful people has done nothing but remind them that they are anything but holy people. And it's not that it's wrong like, to think this way. It's just that that is such an incomplete story. If this is what they think they are to do with the Bible, to marinate in their guilt and their shame and to feel horrible about who they are, they have missed the point. And any pastor, any clergy person, any Christian who uses the Bible to do the same is telling a very incomplete story. If your experience of the Bible if your experience of church and the Christian faith is that it's like we're trying to hold up a mirror so you could see how awful you are, that's not what the Bible is there for. That's not how it's supposed to be used. And if that's been your experience, I apologize on behalf of Christians and pastors everywhere. You see, the job of the pastor we see as we continue to read in the story this morning we read that the Levites, those priests, the clergy people that help calm the people down saying, be quiet because this is a holy day. Do not be grieved. See, if you continue reading into Nehemiah, back into verses 13, 14, and so on, you'll get this glimpse that these priests were trying to instruct and explain the scriptures in a way that moved them from grief and sorrow and sadness and into joy. In that next section of Nehemiah, the priests are teaching them, no, we're supposed to this day actually be celebrating this thing called the Feast of Booths. 
The Feast of Booths was this religious holiday that commemorated and remembered the events of the Exodus. The Exodus was that great biblical event where God redeems God's people, where God takes those who are enslaved and captured to this world and he frees them and moves them in a journey toward new life in him. It's that event where God reminds his people that he hears their cries, that he sees their sufferings, that he, he, he sees and identifies their brokenness, and he's at work in bringing about their wholeness in the world. It's that event where God takes those that the world considers to be the lowliest of lowly people, the slaves, his people, and God makes them his treasured possession. He makes them holy people. And it's that saving activity of God that results in this witness that we get in Psalm chapter 30. It says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. We sang that this morning. You've taken off my sackcloth and you have clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever for you have clothed me with joy. This psalm reminds me of these words of Jesus in John 15 where he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So what the gospel and the scriptures ought to do for us is to teach us how in the midst of brokenness and our shortcomings and our failures and all that we could despair about in the world, it moves us into a place of being joyful. Dallas Willard defines joy this way. He says, joy is this pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. Let me say that again, because it's so good. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. One of the primary indicators and fruits of faith and those who follow God is that they have joy in the midst of a confusing and broken world. But as we must insist that the genius of this biblical call to joy is that we come to it honestly. We don't just like fake it or pretend like we're happy when we're really not, right? As those who speak the truth, those who name the pain that we experience, those who name the suffering that is in the world, who know what it is to, to, to experience all the brokenness of the world, we also recognize that all is well that will be well. There's this great, American Eastern Orthodox theologian who, who wrote it this way in one of his journals that we, we have after his passing. He says, I think God will forgive everything except the lack of joy. When we forget that God created the world and saved it, joy is not one of the components of Christianity. It is the tonality of Christianity that penetrates everything. You see, church, what the scriptures are doing is not creating a pervasive sense of guilt and shame within God's people. Rather, let me just say this real quick. 
I'm almost done. I have one more story after this. There is a place for guilt. There's a place for sorrow and there's a place for frustration and anger. There's a place for seeing in yourself, man, I really need to change that thing about me. No doubt. But it is to say that that the scriptures are an invitation into a story beyond those things. The scriptures are teaching us a way of life that forms us into the kinds of people that despite our failings, despite our circumstances, despite the brokenness and the sufferings that we might experience and see in the world, we are marked by joy with a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. Two things real quick. Joy that stems from the scriptures is not about peppiness. You know, sometimes I feel like we think of joy as like, I'm just a really positive person and like I'm gonna walk around and everyone's gonna know like how peppy I am, right? Joy is this abiding sense of well-being. And how do we live with joy in the midst of brokenness and suffering in the world? Because that's the invitation of the scriptures to us. I'm gonna tell one story. I, uh, last Sunday, I'm gonna share your story, Don, just a little bit. Last Sunday, for those who don't know, Don has been in our church for a little over a year. I was thinking about it just the other week because it's been about a year since we baptized you. What a gift. Don came to our church and he had been battling cancer for a couple of years now. And, and the word is, that I understand of what's going on with him is that it's, it's sort of just like trying to maintain it from getting worse, not trying to get rid of it from his body. So he lives with this real sense that like, I'm sick and I don't know if I'm gonna get better. So last Sunday, he came up to me after service and he shared, so the treatments that we've been doing, the doctors are saying like, they're not working anymore. Can you just pray for me and my family? And I just... That's the opposite of what's supposed to happen, right, God? And so we talked for a little bit and we prayed together. And I was like, what do you do? I don't know what to do with that pastorally. I don't even know what to say. I don't know if there really is anything to say, to be honest. So I go about that day and it was, it was food share. The second Sunday of the month where we have a food pantry at our church and I'm kind of here getting everything ready and I got the table set out and the canopy and I got trying to strap up. I don't know how to tie a knot so I don't know how to get the sign to stay up the way that it's supposed to be. And we're getting all this food out and I, you know, like Elaine shows up and Becca shows up and all of a sudden Don comes strolling in to share, to, to serve at Food Share. And I thought to myself like, why are you here? I don't, I don't understand. This isn't what I would be doing if I were you. And yet we're standing there in this moment and we're talking about the Dodgers and I'm, I'm telling him that he's got to carry these like 50 pounds of food for people who are like coming to, to get something to eat because they have, uh, have, have food insecurities in their life. And I'm standing there and the whole hour, all I could think of is like, this is real Christian faith and joy being lived in the midst of suffering. 
And that's what the scriptures are inviting us into. It's inviting us into a way of life that teaches us that despite the hardships, despite our failings, despite our shortcomings, despite our sufferings, we can still look to God as a source of our well-being and hope and maintain our joy in the face of all of it. Amen? And I will say, Don, one, thank you for letting me share your story, but thank you for the ways that you embody what I hope that I can embody when I suffer in my life. And embodying the scriptures in a very real way where the word is made flesh in you so that we can see it in our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite Max to come up this morning. I read the portion of our service, which I think embodies so much of what I think I tried to say, I don't know if I did say it, of this sense that despite all of the brokenness, there's a real sense of joy and love and goodness that can emerge in the midst of it. We come to the table this morning, which is a place where our Savior's body is broken and poured out for the sake of the world, where there's real suffering, and yet it's in the midst of the suffering that the love and goodness and grace of God is seen in its most profound, compelling way. And so if you find yourself this morning in the midst of brokenness and difficulty and hardship, the table is open for you. The love of God and the grace of God and the sustaining grace of God is available for you. If you find yourself in the moment where you just feel like, man, what the heck is going on in the world? Could there be any redemption here or goodness here? The table is open for you. I'm gonna invite our ushers to come forward this morning. And I'll invite you to receive these elements and to hold on to them and we'll take them together as one body.